Today's podcast episode is with David Garrow, the author of the new book, Rising Star, The Making of Barack Obama. Mr. Garrow is also a Pulitzer Prize winning author of his book, Bearing the Cross, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He is a really fascinating guest and extremely smart and well-versed in um, history and civil rights and Supreme Court cases. And we talk about our favorite Supreme Court justices, which is a very nerdy thing to discuss, I realize. But the fact that two people on one podcast have favorite Supreme Court justices was a lot of fun as well. I look forward to talk talking with Mr. Garrow in the future um, for maybe more current events and, and cases that are coming down from our great court. But I hope you guys enjoyed this interview. I thought it was great. Not in the sense that I was great, but in the sense that uh, the conversation was very interesting and I learned a lot just from speaking with David. So I hope you guys all enjoy the show. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day. And it's what we do with those 24 hours that makes all of the difference in our health, our happiness, and our success. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I am very excited about today's guest. I have David Garrow here. Hello, Mr. Garrow. How are you? Hey, great. Thank you. So... We're in the presence of a Pulitzer Prize winning author. That is very cool. <laughs> Do you think that's very cool? <laughs> it, uh, you know, I was only 33 years old when I won the Pulitzer. And, and uh, for someone who, uh, you know, at that time was a young ap- academic, um, there's no getting around the fact that it's, it's a sort of uh, life changing uh, event. Uh, you know, but on the other hand, uh, you also uh, know pretty early on what the uh, first line of your obituary is going to be. Right, right. I mean, to to come into that sort of prestige so early, that had to be mind-boggling. It was, it was, uh, it was unexpected, and I was so relatively inexperienced that I didn't, at the time, I think, immediately appreciate the import of it. Right. So what did you win the Pulitzer for? Bearing the Cross, uh, my big biography of Martin Luther King Jr., which uh, even now, uh, more than 25 years later, uh, remains the the standard uh, biography of Dr. King. Prior to that, um, I had written two other uh, books on uh, King and the Civil Rights Movement, uh, a book on the Voting Rights Act of 1965 titled Protest at Selma, uh, which is still in print, uh, in paperback, and then a book on the FBI's uh, pursuit of Dr. King that came out in 1981, uh, identified a number of in- important informants who had targeted King. Um, and so those were really my uh, uh, preparation and, and introduction to, to doing the big book on Dr. King. So how did you come to be a historian? When you were a young child, did you have a big interest in history, or did it come later? Um, even when I was in junior high school and high school, uh, I somewhat oddly spent much of my spare time reading uh, books uh, I probably spent two years reading about the U.S. Civil War, 
Um, I also read all of the Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, books about uh, repression and the gulag in the Soviet Union, uh, Arthur Kestler's uh, Darkness at Noon, uh, again, a book about uh, repression and repressive states had a big impact on me. Uh, but it was only as an undergraduate at Wesleyan University in Connecticut uh, where I developed any academic seriousness about it. Uh, the program I was in at Wes uh, required you to do a pretty serious uh, senior honors thesis. Uh, it was the equivalent of uh, four courses your uh, final year of college. Uh, and I uh, re remember all too clearly that... Uh, this is 1974, keep in mind, uh, that they gave you the handsome sum of $500 uh, to spend the summer before your senior year, uh, you know, uh, to, to start working on it. Um, so it was June of 1974 uh, when I started uh, doing my reading for uh, what ended up becoming Protest at Selma, uh, my book on the Voting Rights Act. How did you get interested in, in the civil rights movement? How was that your main focus? Um, the initial stimulus for writing about the Voting Rights Act um, was a political science uh, monograph that I'd had to read uh, sometime my junior year by a uh, then very well-known, now deceased uh, Harvard political scientist named Samuel Huntington, Political Order in Changing Societies. Um, which made an, a sort of abstract argument about uh, how parties would compete to enfranchise excluded groups, uh, which, which of course did not accurately uh, apply to uh, what had been the case with, with disenfranchised black voters in the U.S. South. Uh, so that was the somewhat theoretical path that uh, took me to my interest in the Voting Rights Act. Um, and that undergraduate thesis, which Yale University Press published three years later, uh, is, is a, an analytic uh, academic book. Um, it, it got very nice reviews. It, as I said earlier, it's still in print uh, uh, almost 40 years later now. Um, but it wasn't based on uh, going to Selma, particularly, and meeting the people there. It, it was a book about uh, federal legislation and uh, the Justice Department and how the Voting Rights Act came to be. So it was only after that first book was published uh, that I really uh, started uh, going around the South, interviewing uh, all the people who had known and, and worked with Dr. King. Uh, I started doing that in September of 1979. I was 26 years old then. And I was so young that I did not understand how close in time 1979 still was to 1968. Right, uh, right. To, to me, at my age, uh, 11 years ago <laughs> seemed like, you know, a lifetime. Forever, right. Uh, but for all the people, you know, who, would, who had been close to Dr. King... Uh, you know, 1968 was very close in time. And when I started doing all that interviewing, uh, civil rights history really hadn't begun. Uh, it was really only by the uh, late 1980s 
uh, when when interest in in civil rights history really sort of spread and blossomed. So at the time that that I was going and meeting all these folks, it was it was pretty much just me. Um, you know, people had barely uh, uh, sort of discovered who uh, Rosa Parks was, for example, and the other women uh, who had helped start the Montgomery bus boycott back in 1955, which uh, was the first thing to, to catapult Dr. King into civil rights leadership. Those other women who were just essential to the whole burgeoning of, of the civil rights movement in the South had never really been discovered or, or interviewed at all at that time. Right. So you wrote, um, how long did it take you to write Bearing the Cross? All told, sort of including the, the FBI book, which I did sort of in the middle of that, um, I'd say seven years. Um, Bearing the Cross is, is an 800-page book. Um, I did a lot of uh, interviewing and traveling around the South and uh, going to, to uh, all the different archives. Uh, research technology in the early 1980s <laughs> was a whole lot different than right. uh, it is today. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, when I discovered... Uh, uh, a lady who had all of these transcripts of, of Dr. King's speeches and sermons that had been recorded in the uh, late 1960s, uh, you know, that involved her uh, packing them up and, and shipping them to me. Uh, you know, this was, this was uh, you know, even prior to uh, the creation of the fax machine. Right, right. So... When you decided to take on this project, were, did you know where it was going to go? Did you know you were going to be writing this particular book, um, or or did it kind of grow into bearing the cross? Um, I knew when I started at the end of 1978 that it would be a big book on Dr. King, but only in meeting the people and in immersing myself in King's words, did I come to understand and appreciate his spiritual grounding. And that's really the crux of, of understanding King, and, and it, it's what makes Dr. King such a, a remarkable figure, uh, because he was not someone who wanted to be some leader, some you know famous celebrity person. Um, you know, he he was not ego driven in a self promoting way whatsoever. Uh, you know, he instead was uh, very reluctant, uh, hesitant, ambivalent about being pushed forward uh, into a leadership role, uh, and felt very unsure of, of his own ability and his own courage to, to do that in uh, what first off there in Montgomery was a very threatening situation. Uh, but his uh, religious grounding and uh, spiritual faith uh, gave him a, a sense of calling, a, a sense of obligation. Um, and so King always brought a very uh, expressly self-sacrificial uh, understanding uh, towards his his role. 
Um, he believed from very early on that it was uh, inescapable that at some point he would be killed. Um, and it's one of the great ironies, the greatest irony of all the FBI's electronic surveillance of him over the years, that in those uh, recorded telephone conversations is the most powerful evidence of all of, of how uh, insistently self-critical King always was. He's never uh, uh, taking any... Uh, ego gratification from his press coverage or uh, the awards he's being given. Um, you know, when he receives the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, his reaction to that uh, is that he feels, uh, you know, that, he's, that the honor is, is too simply focused on him as an individual, uh, and it makes him feel all the more obligated to to sacrifice and, and to give of himself. That's awesome. I've read in Adam Grant's book, The Originals, he talks about um, Dr. King's speech, the, the one we all know, the I Have a Dream speech, and how um, it, it's really interesting. His take on it is, is very similar to what you're saying, that, that Dr. King was not ego-driven and um, how he went to that speech with his prepared words, but then he spoke from the heart. And if he hadn't done that, it would have been a different delivery completely. Oh, yes. I mean, Dr. King was first and foremost a, a preacher, a mm-hmm. pastor, a minister. And he had the ability, and it, it was not a unique ability for, for black ministers at all, he had all of these biblical stories and uh, quotations from literature and uh, philosophical sayings. Uh, he had this great mental library of elements that, that you know, he had sort of, you know, stored up. And he could, you know, summon those forth and use them uh, extemporaneously. Uh, in you know speech after speech, sermon after sermon, um, and, and King almost never was reading from a text. Um, on the very few occasions where he did uh, read some speech text that one of his advisors had had written for him, mainly when he's speaking to to white academic gatherings, uh, you, you listen to a recording of one of those, and you would not think it's it's Martin Luther King because it it seems so wooden right. um, compared to the the spontaneous preacher. Yeah. So when I was reading um, a little bit about you, um, I realized that you wrote Liberty and Sexuality. I actually read that book in law school. <laughs> oh, great! Yeah. Um, so one of and I, you know, I know what Roe v. Wade is. Everyone thinks they do, and I started reading a little bit more about it just as a refresher because you dump things out of your brain that you don't need, you know. And I. I remembered in law school when I read the case of Roe v. Wade thinking, this is so much different than the public perception of what this case actually stands for, being the, yeah. you know, the, the right to privacy and, and the due process clause and all of that. So um, I don't want to get super into that, but tell us a little bit about this book and what, what your interpretation of Roe v. Wade was and kind of what this book is about. Certainly. 
Um, after Bearing the Cross came out, I had thought uh, for a brief time that I might do a, a big book on, on the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover and pretty quickly realized that uh, spending time with former FBI agents was nowhere near as fun as uh, <laughs> spending time with former civil rights uh, workers had been. Right. Um, and I had been teaching... Uh, the basic constitutional law cases uh, for a number of years at that point. Um, and the real precursor to Roe v. Wade was a 1965 decision called Griswold versus Connecticut, a uh, pretty well-known case, uh, which struck down a, a, an old Connecticut law that criminalized the use of contraceptives. Um, and sometime in uh, 1987, uh, I would say uh, when we were working on Eyes on the Prize, the big PBS uh, TV history of, of the civil rights movement, uh, which was done out of Boston, I went over to uh, Radcliffe, the uh, women's part of Harvard University. They have a, a great archive there. And I read the only oral history interview that had ever been done with Estelle Griswold, Griswold from Griswold versus mm -hmm. Connecticut, who had passed away by then. And Estelle was uh, a, a wonderfully feisty, courageous, outspoken figure, someone who had uh, really built Connecticut Planned Parenthood into a, uh, a good organization from, from very uh, weak beginnings. And so I started, uh, and, and it's uh, almost 50% of liberty and sexuality, is the story of how Griswold versus Connecticut came to pass, uh, you know, and how it, it came to pass only because of the uh, odd political situation in Connecticut, uh, where Roman Catholic presence uh, in controlling the uh, state Democratic Party uh, had blocked the state legislature from from ever repealing this antiquated uh, anti-contraception statute. Mm -hmm. And so only uh, when Estelle Griswold and uh, Dr. Lee Buxton, uh, a Yale uh, OBGYN who was uh, active in Planned Parenthood, only when they were uh, arrested uh, by New Haven police uh, in 1961 uh, for uh, advising uh, Yale graduate students and other young women uh, on how to uh, practice birth control. Only that criminal prosecution of, of Estelle, uh, which worked it, its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, that's what, uh, by uh, you know, several uh, you know, odd legal happenstances, uh, ends up creating the constitutional right to privacy that is uh, propounded by Griswold. Mm -hmm. And it's the, the constitutional precedent of Griswold in 1965 that first allows uh, a number of young lawyers uh, to imagine for the very first time that this principle of, of privacy uh, regarding reproductive choice uh, could potentially be expanded uh, uh, to to challenge anti-abortion laws as well. Mm -hmm. So what um, 
What are some of the misconceptions about, no pun intended, conceptions? Oh, um, yeah. What are some of the misconceptions about Roe v. Wade? I mean, you hear this case and, you know, the conservative right will bristle because, you know, it. well, because. But then there's different interpretations of this case as far as what it actually dictated. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. The number one misconception about Roe, and and this exists uh, uh, even in in progressive circles uh, as as well as among conservatives, is that the Supreme Courts could have somehow held off on or postponed uh, making any decision uh, in Roe, and and Roe's companion case, uh, Doe v. v. Bolton from Georgia. and this this fictional notion that that the court uh, easily could have ducked the abortion question uh, is simply historically incorrect. Uh, at the time that uh, the court heard Roe and Doe in in 1971 and 1972, there were several dozen constitutional challenges to different state abortion statutes. Uh, working their way through federal and state courts all around the country. Uh, There was a very courageous doctor in Minnesota, Jane Hodgson, uh, who'd been criminally convicted uh, for performing uh, an abortion uh, in a hospital uh, at the request of a young couple whose uh, fetus was was without question uh, suffering uh, serious birth defects. And so if the court uh, had somehow put uh, Roe from Texas uh, aside for the moment, uh, it had Jane Hodgson's criminal challenge, uh, criminal conviction challenging Minnesota's anti-abortion statute uh, facing it, uh, as well as uh, another 15 to 20 uh, that were on the docket or in the pipeline. So making a fundamental decision about the constitutional question, uh, you know, did uh, the Bill of Rights uh, pursuant to Griswold also uh, apply to abortion, uh, that was something that all nine of the justices uh, thought the court had to confront. Right. Um, Roe, when it was decided, came down seven to two. There were only two dissents. And the two dissenters, Byron White, uh, conservative Democrat, uh, William Rehnquist, uh, young Republican who later became Chief Justice, uh, even Rehnquist and White's dissents in Roe uh, were very polite, respectful. They they were not in any way uh, harsh or strident or denunciatory. Uh, so the, the partisan uh, intensity and anger that that later came to uh, characterize the abortion issue in the U.S. Uh, really wasn't uh, uh, present at all uh, at the time that Roe itself was was being uh, argued and and decided. Because it was basically about um, taking into consideration a woman's right to privacy and also balancing the state's interest in you know setting a guideline to preserving its population, I guess, for lack of yes, a better balance, term. Balancing, balancing is, is, is the exactly uh, uh, correct uh, uh, concept to, to cite there. Um, you know, the court identified uh, 
two compelling state interests, one in protecting uh, the pregnant woman's health uh, and the second in, in, in protecting potential uh, fetal life. And the court unsurprisingly focused on fetal viability, uh, circa 24 weeks of pregnancy, as the sort of darkest gray line uh, during pregnancy to uh, to draw a line at uh, regarding uh, state ability to, to protect uh, potential children. Um, and the court at that time, in, in late 72, early 73, uh, did not think that uh, extending constitutional protection all the way t- to fetal viability uh, was in any way a, a particularly controversial or, or edgy uh, decision. Uh, they were pretty much tracking the analysis uh, that a lower federal court uh, in Connecticut um, had already laid out in in terms of analyzing uh, the balancing of of interests uh, during uh, pregnancy. So you are quite the Supreme Court historian as well. Um, The best part of law school for me was reading... Um, the Supreme Court opinions because I got to have my favorite justices and the ones I didn't like. And um, so who is your favorite Supreme Court justice? Oh, without question, David Souter, uh, who's now retired. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Justice Souter is a, still alive, uh, still sits very often on the, the U.S. Court of Appeals in Boston. Uh, as some listeners, I think, might remember Justice Souter's from New Hampshire. He loves Boston, uh, uh-huh. never liked Washington. Um, Justice Souter's great achievement, uh, along with uh, Justice Kennedy, who's still on the court, and Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who retired some years ago but is still alive too, um, was Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992, uh, which was a, a landmark reaffirmation of, of Roe v. Wade. Uh, a reaffirmation that came at a time when uh, virtually all uh, legal onlookers uh, thought the court might uh, uh, reverse or, or hugely cut back on Roe, uh, because up till then O'Connor had been a, a critic of Roe. Uh, Souter was uh, an unknown, but had been uh, nominated uh, by the first President Bush, so he was presumed to be a conservative. Uh, but Casey is is a remarkable opinion, uh, celebrating the importance of of constitutional liberty. Uh, Casey, you know, changes from Roe's use of privacy as the concept to liberty. Um, but Casey is is a remarkably powerful opinion. Um, and it remains uh, the defining analysis of uh, uh, abortion uh, issues. Uh, even today, uh, the court uh, last summer, just about a year ago uh, right now, uh, reaffirmed uh, uh, Casey in a, uh, a case from Texas called Whole Woman's Health. Mm-hmm. So my favorite Supreme Court justice was William Brennan. <laughs> I had a, oh, I had a parakeet yeah. named Justice Brennan, and 
in law school I, because when I took a capital punishment class and his dissenting opinion, and I think it was Glass versus Louisiana where he talked about um, the electric chair and how it was exceptionally cruel and unusual punishment, it was just so passionate. And um, I really just loved reading Supreme Court opinions after that. And so, um, and I just loved yeah, him because he was just like a cute, yeah. cute, the cutest little man. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I did not know him super well personally, um, but, but Justice Brennan was a, a very winsome, uh, friendly, wonderful, outgoing personality, uh, and a very savvy, uh, thoughtful judicial strategist, um, you know, someone who had a, a major role in, in shaping Roe v. Wade. Uh, you know, even though he came from a, a very traditionally Roman Catholic background in, in Newark, New Jersey. Um, and as, as some listeners will know, uh, Justice Brennan was a Republican uh, nominated to the court by President Eisenhower in the mid-1950s. Um, you know, people speak of the Warren Court uh, of the 1960s because of Chief Justice Warren. Uh, but among most of us who are Supreme Court uh, historians, uh, you know, we'd be much more uh, inclined to call it the Brennan right. Court uh, than the Warren Court because it was Brennan who was very much the uh, uh, the real leader uh, of the liberal justices. So let's move on to your latest endeavor, the new book that you have out, um, Rising Star, The Making of Barack Obama. This is a huge book. This is 1,400 pages. So how long was this in the making? Nine years. How do you have that patience? (laughs) It's it's incredibly tiring and draining to, to do a book like this. But during the research part of it, when one's traveling around to to meet and speak with people, that part of it is, for me, just as with Bearing the Cross, uh, great fun and and very emotionally rewarding, uh, because the vast majority of the people whom you get to meet uh, are really wonderful, stimulating people. from whom I, as a historian, uh, can draw strength. Uh, and and I'm, I've always been very cognizant of how I'm able to uh, draw emotional strength from these people who are, uh, you know, volunteering their time to help me. How do you know when your research is done? Do you just have to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, no more? Um, the great virtue of being an academic, uh, you know, rather than a commercial writer who, you know, has to live off of what you get paid, you know, for the book, is that I don't have to draw any timeline limit. Um, with this book, um, I knew early on, uh, what I needed to do to cover the, the real centerpiece of Barack's life, which was his early years in Chicago as a community organizer, and then moving, uh, both back in time from there and forward in time, 
Um, the most demanding part of, of doing the research for this book uh, involved the close to eight years that Barack spent in Springfield, uh, the Illinois state capitol, uh, as a state senator. Um, Springfield is not one of the more exciting places in the world, um, but virtually everyone in the Illinois State Capitol building knew Barack during that time. Uh, journalists had made almost no effort whatsoever to do any detailed uh, research in, into Barack's time in the state legislature. And so, again, the, the people were enjoyable and, and fascinating to meet, uh, but it, it's a slog uh, <laughs> to... Uh, uh, work your way uh, through, you know, year after year in in the life of a state legislature. So do you want to talk a little bit about um, sort of what this book entails as far as what you cover in, in President Obama's life, uh, what the focus is? Certainly. Um, Barack's three years, 1985 to 1988, as a community organizer in Chicago, when he's 25, 26 years old, uh, that's the transformative experience of his life. Uh, everyone who knew Barack uh, in high school, in college, uh, when he's kicking around New York after college, thought he was perfectly nice, but utterly unremarkable. Fast forward three years uh, to 1988, when Barack leaves Chicago to start law school at Harvard, everyone at Harvard, uh, all his fellow students, uh, his professors, really from day one, think that this is a remarkable, uh, unforgettable young man whom everybody will be reading about in, in future years. So the difference between the Barack of 85 and the Barack of 88 uh, that's the crux. Um, because of that, the first chapter in this book uh, traces what has happened on the far south side of Chicago uh, in the five years uh, before Barack gets there, uh, a period where the steel industry, uh, which was the, the major economic force on the southeast side of Chicago, uh, had started collapsing uh, en masse. Um, then uh, I go back to uh, really when Barack's father uh, leaves Kenya uh, to attend college in Hawaii. Um, that's how Barack comes comes into being, uh, even though Barack's Kenyan father uh, abandoned him and, and Barack's mother when Barack was just one year old. Um, thanks to his mother's parents, uh, Barack has a, a quite nice childhood uh, in Hawaii, uh, goes to an elite prep school, Punahou, has a good education, uh, spends way too much time uh, smoking marijuana and, and drinking beer, <laughs> uh, gets into a respectable liberal arts college in Los Angeles, Occidental College, uh, continues being uh, a little bit too much of a, a partier uh, those two years at Oxy. Uh, and transfers from Occidental to Columbia University in New York because he, he wants a, a bigger, more more urban experience. Um, once he graduates from Columbia, he uh, takes a job with a, a financial uh, reporting company that he uh, finds incredibly unpleasant. Uh, he stays in it for literally 365 days. 
um, and then uh, ends up bouncing around uh, New York City for about six months, uh, working in short-term jobs, uh, being just this side of homeless uh, by the end of it, uh, and then happens to find uh, a job ad uh, for this community organizing post in Chicago, uh, and that's what leads him uh, uh, to move uh, from New York to Chicago in, in the summer of 1985. And he was about, what did you say, 26 at this time? Yeah, he's, he's okay. just about uh, to turn 24 uh, at, at that time okay. uh, when he gets to Chicago. And so that was what you pinpointed as the shift, really, in his life. Yes. It's the first time ever that Barack was exposed uh, to black America. Um, Growing up in Hawaii, um, living briefly as a young child in Indonesia where his mother was working, um, Barack had had almost no exposure uh, to black Americans. Um, In college uh, and and after college uh, in New York, um, his friendship network was mainly a, a group of Pakistani guys uh, and some other international students from uh, India, France. Um, so only uh, when he gets to the south side of Chicago uh, in this community organizing job, uh, working mainly with church congregations, um, only then uh, is Barack really uh, immersed for the first time in a in a black community, uh, and at that time, the the mayor of Chicago, Harold Washington, uh, Chicago's first black mayor, uh, is a, a very energetic, uh, larger than life, uh, effervescent presence, and so the contrast between the the very difficult, uh, frustrating uh, community organizing work. Um, that Barack was doing, and the example of of Mayor Washington as this uh, hugely popular electoral figure, um, that played a big role in convincing Barack uh, that it would be much more productive to to pursue a political future for himself, uh, and that's what leads him uh, very consciously to to go to Harvard for law school. Uh, and and get that credential uh, on his resume and and begin uh, plotting uh, uh, an electoral career in the future. From your research and from talking to everyone, did it appear that his aspirations were based in you know the idea of making a change and doing good in the world, or was did was it kind of opportunistic? I think it's a combination of two things. One is wanting to have an impact uh, to make life better for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, during law school, Barack and his, his closest friend, close, close friend, Rob Fisher, a little bit older, white uh, economist, uh, Barack and Rob wrote an unpublished book manuscript together. Uh, half of it's about plant closings, which is what Barack had seen on the south side of Chicago there. Uh, the other half is about race and how uh, how to advance racial equality in the U.S. by means of politics rather than by means of civil rights litigation. 
so you'll uh, understand this very well, having gone to law school uh, yourself. Uh, for someone who's a, a third-year student at Harvard Law School, uh, to write a hundred-page uh, or more chapter, uh, basically arguing that that uh, lawyering and litigation is is not the path to progress. <laughs> Uh, is is a somewhat unusual stance for someone to take in in 1991, uh, but it's an outgrowth uh, of of what Barack had had experienced in Chicago, uh, and it's very much uh, uh, an outline uh, for what he wants to do once he's able to uh, uh, become a politician. So his um, well, let's talk a little bit about his rise to power, really. Um, the biggest thing that impacted his political career was, of course, the speech at the Democratic National Convention in, was it 2004, I think? Yes. Um, but how did he get to that point? Um, Barack had first entered the Illinois state legislature with grand aspirations uh, for the public policy-making opportunities this would offer him. Um, and he came to realize very quickly and very painfully uh, that the Illinois State Senate uh, didn't really offer those opportunities at all. It was controlled by uh, very conservative good old boy Republicans, um, and even the Democrats who became Barack's closest friends were a a trio of of somewhat conservative uh, older white guys uh, from outside Chicago. Um, that led Barack to uh, make a horrible decision in trying to challenge an incumbent congressman, uh, Bobby Rush, former Black Panther leader, uh, in Chicago in 2000, uh, and Barack barely got 30% of the vote. Um, following that, uh, his wife, Michelle, sort of laid down the law. Um, she had never been enthusiastic about Barack's political career and told him he had, you know, one more shot maximum, uh, you know, at politics. And that's what led Barack to uh, start running uh, for the U.S. Senate uh, seat that would uh, come up in 2004 uh, in Illinois. Uh, And through a a series of of very fortuitous uh, lucky breaks, uh, Barack ended up winning that uh, Democratic Senate primary uh, with uh, sort of more than a majority landslide in a in a multi-candidate field. Um, that's what uh, brought him to the attention of of John Kerry, the Democratic presidential nominee, uh, in spring 2004, and Kerry's uh, top campaign staffers, uh, because they wanted to highlight. Uh, both uh, someone young and energetic and and also someone who was a a person of color uh, at that 2004 uh, summer Democratic convention. So when you're writing a book of this magnitude, you really get to know, obviously, the subject, or or you think you get to know the subject of the book fairly well. At the end of the day and all that you know about Barack Obama, do you like him? Would you hang out with him? Honestly, no. You know, in terms of of, uh, choosing who I'd, uh, you know, want to go drink uh, craft beer with, uh, you know, here in Pittsburgh, we have a number of uh, first-rate small craft breweries. 
Um, Barack Obama would not rank very high on that list because he's uh, not a very spontaneous person. He is a profoundly political person, a very calculating, very controlled person. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried very hard to always separate my love uh, for Dr. King, um, who was an immensely courageous, self-critical figure, uh, from how I react uh, to Barack Obama's life story. But once Barack made the decision in in 2001, 2002, uh, that he wanted to win that U.S. Senate race. Once he makes the decision that victory is is the number one uh, priority, uh, he beca- he begins to to make decisions uh, and act in a way uh, that is less than principled, um, and that really. Uh, grows even further come 2007, 2008, uh, when his disappointment with the U.S. Senate uh, leads him to embark upon the presidential race. Um, Back in Illinois, uh, starting in the late 1990s, Barack's defining number one issue uh, had been campaign finance reform and and getting uh, big money out of politics. Uh, but come 2008, um, he really flushed that commitment uh, down the toilet uh, and rejected public funding uh, because of the uh, appreciation that uh, to rely instead upon big money, big private money, uh, would give him a partisan advantage over John McCain, uh, the Republican nominee. Um, so people, I mean, even... Uh, folks like ourselves who are, are, you know, liberal progressive Democrats uh, have to appreciate that Barack Obama is first and foremost uh, a politician, uh, 110%. So how was the publication of this book and the release and the reviews different from when you published Bearing the Cross in the social media age? Have you seen a, can you note big differences in the timing? Um, one thing that is very clear nowadays, and I don't think it was the case in 1986, is that appearing on television sells books. (laughs) Um, and, you know, HarperCollins, my publisher of this, is able to, you know, track this on a sort of daily basis. Um, and I think it's the belief in trade publishing, um, I'm not sure folks would be eager for me to say this publicly, but I think there's a belief in trade publishing that conservatives buy more books than liberals. Um, So, uh, you know, appearing uh, with, you know, Tucker Carlson on Fox, uh, you know, can put you on, you know, even the New York Times bestseller list. Um, The other huge, huge difference uh, that's taken place over the past uh, 15, 17 years is there are so, so fewer uh, written outlets, uh, you know, newspapers and magazines uh, that review nonfiction books now uh, as compared to, say, the year 2000. 
uh, a big part of that is is how uh, daily newspapers have have shrunk uh, both in in uh, quantity and in quality uh, so badly uh, thanks to the rise of the web um, and I think too that the presence of uh, Twitter and Facebook uh, leads to an awful lot of people uh, investing more time in communicating on on social media than they do uh, in reading. Uh, so I think it's much more challenging uh, for for any sort of uh, serious nonfiction book uh, to be published nowadays. Uh, than, say, during the the 1990s or 1980s. Absolutely. I could talk to you all day. You're just a wealth of knowledge, and I could get really nerdy, and we could discuss Supreme Court cases, and it would be so fun. Um, But I only have one more question for you. Um, This podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, and it was from the idea that we all have the same 24 hours in our day. And it's what we do in those 24 hours that makes our happiness and health and success. And in your case, nine years of research for an amazing book. Um, But what is something that you do on a daily basis that you can point to that you feel contributes to your happiness and success? Um, I'm a very, very predictable person. Um, my body wakes me up at 6.15 or 6.30 in the morning, especially now, you know, here we are in the middle of June. Um, so I'm incredibly a morning person. Um, I lived for six years in Britain and I loved being five hours ahead of everyone in the United States because, (laughs) you know, things, you know, email didn't start arriving until, you know, the the middle of the day British time. Right. That's Um, awesome. Yeah. But doing, doing a book like this, um, I'm now 64 coming up on 65 years old is very physically tiring and draining. Um, and so for really the whole last three years, both when I was doing the actual writing and uh, even now, uh, this this past uh, twelve plus months, um, I have a tough time keeping myself up uh, awake in the evenings, uh, much past uh, nine o'clock or so. Many nights, um, I know from my experience back in the nineteen nineties, after finishing Liberty and Sexuality, uh, that it takes you a good year uh, to just sort of build back. Uh, after uh, uh, an experience that's that's this intense and and this lengthy, so you need your sleep. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm certainly getting my sleep now. <laughs> well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. You guys, the book Rising Star is out and available at all the bookstores and Amazon. Um, Rising Star: The Making of Barack Obama. So, thank you again for for this opportunity to talk with you, and I wish you the best of luck in whatever you do next. Thank, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. All right, talk to you soon.